This morning I want to address the subject, Jesus worth the water. Jesus worth the water. Speaking of baptism, it takes about 90 gallons to baptize someone. 90 gallons of water to baptize someone. And only 9 drops of water to keep them from church on Sunday morning. I thank you that you've come. Marvelous. I do know of the water department of one city that contacted the church and said, uh, apparently you've got a leak in your water system at the church. And they replied back, well, we've looked all over and we didn't find anything. And they continued to warn them, you have a water leak. They said, actually, we found the problem. We've got revival and there are many people following Christ and we're constantly filling up the baptistry. Wouldn't that be a marvelous problem to have in every one of our churches? I'm looking at this text this morning in really gospel text for the next number of weeks because I am aware that there are a number of competing motives for the Christian life. There is the notion, and I think it's correct, unfortunately, that in order to get Christians involved in church and to serve and to participate, you've got to have some hooks to get them. You have to give them some motivation for doing so. I think that's correct. I think it's unfortunate, too. And I'll explain why in just a moment. And so what that has done through the years is that it's developed a number of different kinds of Christians. One, there is the controller. This is the person that's very rigid when it comes to tradition and ritual. They may have grown up in a chaotic family, and so their personality tends to, as an adult, tends to be attracted to those things that are rigid and tightly controlled. And uh, uh, they, they fear chaos. Because of that, church leaders are those who enforce the tradition and enforce the ritual. But then there is also the contortionist. This is the one that obscures Jesus. This person is very, very rigid on the means and the ways of holiness and purity. And so instead of encouraging people to go by the Scripture and to follow the Holy Spirit, they have a lot of additional rules to following the Christian faith. They're very rigid. They're very fearful of contamination. They may have come from a background where that was very real. And because of that, and the hurt and pain that they have suffered, they may end up contorting the faith by adding to it. And then there's the consumer. This person, uh, where the controller controls Jesus, the contortionist obscures Jesus, the consumer employs Jesus. Jesus is the best employee the consumer has. This person fears emptiness. Leaders then become those that are essentially customer service agents. They produce uh, products, religious products, to satisfy the consumer. Uh, then there is the clubber, the person that uses Jesus as a country club in his church. They use him. Uh, they fear boredom, and so leaders become event coordinators, and they put on events. And, and then there's the cool Christian. This person revises Jesus. Now, it may go of one of two ways. They fear irrelevance, and uh, as a result, the leader becomes a cultural expert. Either they revise what is said from the pulpit, they still believe it, still believe it, but the message that comes from that is not expository in fashion. They, they invent messages, and the church does too. And the church is known for something other than its biblical fidelity. Or, on the other hand, they completely reduce the message and set aside the word 
of God. There's a problem here with each of these, uh, except the last one that we'll look at in just a moment. And, And that is, with this, there is a subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, shift in lordship. Jesus Christ in, these, uh, in th- these frameworks is no longer the Lord God Almighty, the human is. The consumer is, the controller is, the contortionist is, the clubber is, the cool or the hipster happens to be the Lord. And, and I, I need to just let you know, this desire to dethrone Christ as Lord from the Christian life and the Christian church and to establish a human in his place is a universal human tendency especially in the church where they care about such things it is a human tendency it reminds me of the story of the church that had on its sign in the front near the road just the simple words Jesus only well a storm came through one night and blew off the first three letters and when the storm was done with the sign it said us only Now listen to me, there is no church member, there is no Christian, there is no church that intentionally and purposefully says, let's make a decision to dethrone Jesus. It's never obvious, it's always subtle. Little compromise here, little compromise there, a little more compromise the next month, a little more compromise the next. It is very, very Subtle. So don't expect to see this in flaming colors. It's not even as bold as pastels. It's not that bold. Instead, it's very subtle. And it takes place over a number of years and even perhaps decades. And I think, in my personal opinion, I have just explained the majority of American churches. But I have not explained this one. The, the final approach happens to be the Christian approach. And that is the church magnifies Jesus. The Christian magnifies Jesus in doctrine and in practice and in every area of life. The fear, the fear here is not chaos. Um, The fear here is not the fear of contamination. The fear here is not the fear of emptiness. The fear here is not the fear of boredom. The fear here is not the fear of irrelevance. The fear here is that we may fail to please and satisfy the Son of God. That's the fear of the genuine Christian approach. So I I want to say to you, Jesus is the only hook we need for the people of God. He's the only hook. And I must tell you, we've got to come to the point where His birth and His life and His death and His resurrection his current session, and His promised return are enough to involve us in His service. We need nothing else. We don't need a church that satisfies us. We don't need a church that caters to us. We don't need a church that treats us like consumers. You see, when that happens, we distort Jesus, and people don't end up knowing God. They don't know Him because we presented to Him something entirely different. So it's a very small thing if I have control, it's a, it's a very small thing if the church entertains me. It's a very small thing if the church satisfies me. It's a very small thing if I am applauded by the world. What matters most is Jesus being pleased. That's all that matters. Is He pleased? So my question to you this morning 
if you consider yourself one of God's people is, is Jesus worthy? Is Jesus enough of a hook for you? And then is it right to appeal to Christians and churches and the world on any other basis than Jesus? Well, in, in this text in Matthew 3, G, Jesus demonstrated His worth for our service in His baptism. Begin reading with me in verse number 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Well, permit it uh, to be so now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This story here makes Jesus worthy and the only hook the people of God should need to involve themselves in his mission and in his service. Well, what about his baptism makes him worthy? Of service. Well, there are several things. One, in his baptism, Jesus pictured God's gospel. In verse 13, it says that he was baptized. And the way Jesus pictured the gospel here was one, in, in, in the message, he confirmed. You see, John is preaching and baptizing in, on the Jordan River when Jerusalem, Judea, the whole region is out there. Uh, John, uh, Matthew's using a little hyperbole. The, whole region didn't go out there, but boy, it sure did seem like it. Everyone's out there, and they are watching John uh, baptize there in the Jordan River. And John is preaching before he baptizes in this text. And Jesus comes along and identifies and endorses John by letting John baptize him. That's the action he's taking. Now look at what John is preaching in verse number 2 of chapter 3. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Jesus agreed with that. That's why he let John baptize him. And then, uh, verse number 7. John looks at the Pharisees, some very committed laymen, and Sadducees, the religious clergy, and says to them, well, this will warm your heart, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Well, this is what these fellows have been telling the Gentiles. And now John is telling them, as Jews, to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And then, do not have a false sense of security, to paraphrase, by saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Never, ever overlook the person in the community that appears to be as hard as a stone. God can raise up a child of God even from that. And then he gives very powerful divine threats beginning in verse 10. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is preaching this. He's creating a stir down on the Jordan River. And Jesus comes, and after John preaches this message, he allows John to baptize him, indicating to the whole crowd he agrees with this message. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel of Christ. 
And it is seen in John the Baptist's message. But then there's baptism's method. It says in verse 13 that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized, baptizo, by him. The word baptism never means sprinkling or pouring. It always means to dip or to immerse. And so we are the Beach Haven um, Dipper Church in many ways. And the president of the Southern Baptist Convention is the Big Dipper, if we can put it that way. And so he was dipped, he was immersed. In fact, um, in classical Greek, there were some Greek sailors who were on a sinking ship and they cried out, Baptizo, Baptizo, were being immersed in the Mediterranean Sea. And that's what baptism means. Now look, verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And so baptism means you come up out of the water. Now, I don't uh, excoriate uh, Christians who do it differently, but, and, and I, I want to make clear that we Baptists baptize by immersion, believers only, not because we are superior to other people. In fact, I'm sure that's not true. Uh, we baptize the way we baptize because that's what the Bible teaches. And that's how it happened in the New Testament. It cost us a bit more money in water, but we have never felt authorized to change this approach to baptism and why others feel like they're authorized to change baptism, I do not know. That, that confuses me and it's a scandal on the church. But in any case, this is how it happened in the New Testament. And so we feel obligated by Jesus to baptize in that way. And so baptism's method then was by immersion of uh, those uh, uh, in the New Testament who were believers only. Now, of course, I've explained to you before, but we'll explain again. When you baptize someone, you've got the water level running horizontal. And you've got the candidate standing perpendicular. Now, that 10th grade geometry class comes in handy very often. And so the water is horizontal, and the candidate is perpendic uh, perpendicular to it. It's vertical. And what does that form? It forms a cross. And so when a candidate is being baptized, that person may never preach a sermon, may never teach a Bible study, but in that moment is declaring the death of Jesus. And then they're put under for about a second, usually. Now, when I baptized Luke uh, a few years ago, he asked me to hold him under for three seconds. He said, Jesus was in the grave three days, hold me under three seconds. And I thought, well, you wimp, why don't you let me hold you under three days? But, um, <coughs> but do you know how long three seconds appears to be when you're accustomed to people being under the water one second? Okay, And, and, and so we, we placed him under and it's not a drowning, it's a baptism, so we brought him up, okay? That's what we did. Well, that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection that he will pull off one day when he returns, and it's the resurrection of the believer inside. It symbolizes all of that in, about, uh, in just a few seconds. And so you declare the death, burial, and resurrection with baptism. You don't get that any other way. There's some sweet Christians who do it otherwise, but uh, we do it this way because it is the New Testament way, and it perpetuates the gospel of Christ. Now, I say all that to say this. The gospel that we see in baptism is the most necessary and urgent message in all the earth. And Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, focused like a laser on it. You know something? I appreciate somebody that puts first things first. I appreciate somebody who has a sense of urgency about priorities. And Jesus did this. In fact, other gospel writers will say he walked from Nazareth down to the Jordan River to be baptized. Have you ever calculated that walk? 
Not that you've been there and done that, but with your Bible maps. Have you ever done that? That is at least a 40-mile walk. Don't tell me that baptism by immersion of believers is not important. It is terribly important. It was important to Jesus, and that is why he did it. Listen, you should never be satisfied until you're baptized like Jesus was. And whenever, whenever you serve Jesus simply because he is worthy, you are serving someone, you're serving someone who is in a class by himself on focusing on important issues. There's no one like him. And after the message, during our invitation today, we're going to give you the opportunity to place your faith in Jesus Christ with our help. We'll give you the opportunity to follow Christ in baptism, to become part of Beach Haven as well at the end of the message. So in, in his baptism, Jesus pictured God's gospel. But there's a second thing. In his baptism, Jesus performed God's will. He performed God's will. It reminds me of a pastor one Sunday who baptized uh, someone in the service, uh, a young man. And he was real proud of this young man. He'd come from a sweet Christian home, and his parents had led him to the Lord and had trained him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and baptized him. And right before he baptized him, the pastor said, every child should come from a good Christian home. Well, the boy got into the car after the service and was driving home with his parents, another boy, and he uh, began to cry. And his parents said, well, what's wrong? He said, well, when that pastor said every child should come from a good Christian home, that scared me. They said, why? He said, because I want to stay with you. <laughs> Do you know something? Jesus grew up in a home that's length was about half the length of the width of this worship center. And its width wasn't much more than from the pulpit to the first pew. And he had brothers and sisters. If he had just one sister, and he probably had many, uh, a few more, but if he had just one sister, he grew up in a home that small with just a couple of rooms that was cram-packed daily with eight people, and he never sinned. Yes, Wow. Listen, in our 3,000, 4,000 square feet home, it's even easy for us to sin in that context, having to live with other people. Well, this is what we have here in this text. Look at verse number 14 and 15. John, in verse 14, John tried to prevent him from baptism. The word here is in the imperfect tense in the Greek language, and it means repeatedly. John kept saying over and over again, Wait, 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 hold on. I need to be baptized by you. You're coming to me? He tried to prevent him several times from being baptized. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When Jesus came, he was interested in fulfilling righteousness, fulfilling God's will, fulfilling God's righteousness, walking in righteousness before uh, God. Now, here's the thing. John as dedicated as he was, found this commitment by Jesus to be, bapt uh, to be baptized to be very, very odd. Why, it was strange to John the prophet. It was strange to John the religious leader, this commitment of Jesus to be baptized. It, it was very odd. It, it, was, it was highly, highly unusual. But Jesus did it anyway. It was in this odd and strange and unusual commitment of Jesus that did not meet John the Baptist's initial approval where righteousness was found. 
And that's what happened here. Folks, our world and sometimes religious institutions are so sin-sick that what is right appears to be wrong and opposition to it can even come from sincere religious persons. And that's what happened to Jesus here in this text. But for Jesus, it did not matter what others expected. He did God's will even when it startled, unsettled, or offended. Now, Jesus didn't run around with a stick, figuratively, poking it in people's eyes. I I don't believe that until the last week of his life where he did so in a sacred and holy way. But Jesus was committed to doing God's will, and pain and misunderstanding could not keep him from it. Patrick the evangelist, the Irish evangelist, many centuries ago evangelized the island of uh, Ireland that was inhabited and ruled by many pagan kings. And one king he won to the Lord. And Patrick was standing in the river about to baptize this pagan king or former pagan king by immersion now that he was a believer. Patrick would carry with him a standard, which was a long stick, a long pole with a sharp end that had a cross attached to the top of it, and he would thrust it into the ground before he preached, and he would thrust it into the river before he baptized. Well, on this occasion, he had this standard with him in the water with the king. And he took that standard and slammed it into the river right through the king's foot. And the king said nothing. And Patrick baptized him and brought him back up and then saw the blood as it surfaced at the top of the water. And Patrick apologized and said, I'm sorry. And the king said, that's okay. I thought it was part of the baptism. (laughs) There is... In baptism, something of a crucifixion for the sake of God's will that takes place. We take our desires, our passions, vision, goals, dreams, aspirations, standards, and silly opinions, and even a few that we hold seriously, and set them aside, crucify them, drive the cross through the heart of them, and say, God, whatever you want from me, I'll do it. I'm not trying to be abrasive. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to poke my finger in other people's eye, figuratively speaking, or literally. What I want to do, though, is I want to do the will of God. I don't care what the world thinks about it at all. Baptism, listen to me, baptism may cost you, but be like Jesus and come to the water anyway. That's what Jesus did. And so when you serve Jesus because he's worthy, you serve someone who is in a class by himself, When it comes to the doing of God's will, there's no one like Jesus in that regard. He's in a class by himself. But there's a third third reason. And that is, in his baptism, Jesus prompted God's endorsement. Now, a very important question that we've got to answer, and every generation has got to, is why is it that I have chosen to follow Jesus instead of some other world religious leader? Well, why do I not follow Muhammad in in, in Islam? Why do I not follow Joseph Smith in Mormonism? Why do I not follow one of the cults? I mean, sometimes their numbers grow. They can be rather impressive. They market their goods and their views with uh, effectiveness. Why, Why is it that I have chosen Jesus? I mean, it's got to be more than you were raised that way. I mean, Mormons were raised that way. Muslims were raised that way. There's got to be another reason. And and all of these world religion leaders claim some kind of commissioning from God. Muhammad claimed one in a private cave in the 7th century that Gabriel came to him. 
Joseph Smith claimed one in his bedroom in upstate New York from the, an angel. Others claim something similar. Why is it that you have chosen Jesus to follow him? Well, verse 16 and 17 is a great place to start. There are many compelling and cogent reasons why we follow Jesus. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says here, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Jesus had the Spirit of God upon his life in ministry. There is no one who has ever had the kind of ministry that Jesus did. No one raised the dead. No one healed the sick. No one returned sight to the blind, speech to the mute, and the ability to walk to the lame like Jesus did. And Jesus even raised Lazarus from the dead in the presence of many witnesses. He had a Spirit-empowered ministry. So, it was powerful. Then, it's particular. Look at verse um, number 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Not all of them that claim that, but this one. It's particular. The Father identified Jesus as the only one who qualified as His beloved Son. He never did that for any of the other world religion leaders. This is my beloved Son. So, it's powerful in particular. Then it's personal. This is my beloved Son. So the Father from heaven is identifying with Jesus Christ there in that moment and investing His all publicly in Him. This is my beloved Son. Then it's passionate. This is my beloved Son. God the Father has left no doubt whatsoever as to His affections and His public commitment to His Son, and nor should we. So it is passionate. Then it's pleasing. With Him, I am well pleased. No one cheers the heart of the Heavenly Father like Jesus Christ. He's pleased with Him. And then, look at verse 5. There's one final way to describe this. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to Him and were baptized by Him. When this event occurred, Jerusalem, Judea, and many from the region around the Jordan were present. So it is the Father's approval and endorsement of Him is powerful, particular, personal, passionate, pleasing, and it is public. Ladies and gentlemen, when world religion leaders other than Jesus claim a commissioning from God, they always claim it happened in private. Muhammad, a private cave. Uh, Sung Myung Moon, a private Korean hillside. Um, Joseph Smith, a private bedroom in upstate New York. But when Jesus claims a public a commissioning, it is always done in public in the presence of many witnesses. There are others who can testify of it. And this reminds me of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he appeared to 500 at one time. Well, that's enough to haul a bunch of people before, before an attorney in a court where they can testify with convincing first-hand eyewitness accounts that Jesus was alive after his death. When God wants to do a new thing as he did in Jesus, he doesn't do it privately in a cave, bedroom, or hillside. He does it publicly in the presence of many witnesses. So in his baptism, Jesus prompted God's endorsement. So you need to understand, in his baptism, the Father and the Spirit showed Jesus as the only one worthy of heaven's endorsement. And so that's why we Christians, not that we're superior, not that we're better, oh no, 
But that's why we are really quick to dismiss the claims of other world religions. They cannot match the persuasiveness of Jesus Christ. So when you serve Jesus because he is worthy, and that alone, you serve someone who's in a class by himself when it comes to heaven's approval. Listen to me carefully. At other churches and other venues, you may find better preaching. That's likely. You may find better marketing. You may find better recreation programs. You may find better buildings. You may even find better coffee and donuts. But you will never find a better Jesus than what is proclaimed here at this church. Jesus then, Jesus then is the best thing about us. He's the best thing. Not our marketing, not our preaching, not our recreation programs. As lovely as many of these things may be, Jesus is the best thing about us. So in baptism, Jesus pictured the gospel. He performed righteousness. He prompted heaven's endorsement and certification. Beloved, he is good enough for God. Let's make sure he's good enough for us as well. And is he good enough for you today? Is he good enough for you to come to him and rush to him and cast your guilt and your sins upon him? By claiming Him as Lord and Savior. Is He good enough for you to follow Him in the waters of baptism? Is He good enough for you to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church and to join this church? Is He good enough for you? Is He good enough for you to reorient, rearrange your life, priorities, your vision, and your whole motive for service and participation in Him and His church? Well, one day, at the age of 61, He was good enough for Sam Houston. He was. Sam Houston was governor of Tennessee. He went through a divorce and broke his heart. He went out among the Cherokee Indians before going to Texas, and he drank so badly that the Cherokee gave him a personal nickname that meant the big drunk. And that's what he was. But he went off to Texas and did a few small things over there, led quite a revolution, and was Texas' first president of the Republic of Texas. Well, uh, George Washington Baines, who was the maternal great-grandfather of Lyndon Baines Johnson. He was a Baptist preacher in Independence, Texas, and he shared the good news with uh, Sam Houston. Now, Sam earlier in his life had asked for baptism from a church, but because of his reputation, they wouldn't take him. And I'm thinking, my soul. But George Washington Baines explained the good news of Christ and said, God has grace, and if you'll humbly repent and place faith in Him, He will embrace you. It doesn't matter anything about your past. And right there, He did. A few months later, R.C. Burleson found Him, and there at Independence, Texas, in a river nearby the church, He immersed Him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Sam Houston came up, He said, God help the fish downriver. Sam Houston did not keep his past, his nickname, his multiple divorces. He did not keep his poor reputation from Jesus Christ, his baptistry, or his church. And I've got good news for you today. You don't have to keep yourself from it either. It doesn't have to prevent you. Nothing prevents you from following Christ today. God's ready. All of heaven is prepared. You're prepared today as well. Why don't you come to Christ, come to His baptistry, or come to His church today, whatever your need is. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and I want us to pray.
Lord, we stand amazed in these moments at Jesus and how he performed all things. And just in this one brief passage, in these brief moments, we are so stirred that he prompted heaven's endorsement that he is your son, beloved, and well-pleasing to you. We want to echo that as well. We praise you that he performed your will vigorously, personally, powerfully, zealously, without ever failing. We can't claim that, but we thank you that he can. And we thank you that he made clear and made vivid the saving gospel of Christ. Thank you that he has a way of focusing on important issues. Thank you that he's in a class by himself and doing your will. Thank you that he's in a class by himself all alone. Only one name on that class roll when it comes to having heaven's approval. And we pray that you would shape us to where we don't care about anything more than exalting Jesus. Would you help friends today to say yes to him? Would you help friends today to say yes to his gift of grace and salvation? And yes, oh God, to, to baptism? Or yes to becoming part of your church here at Beach Haven? Would you please, by your Holy Spirit, move upon us and do a neat work today? And we're going to sing a song in just a moment. I surrender all. That's a real powerful statement, very meaningful. I think you mean it today. We want to help you with that. Our staff will be standing here at the front. And as you come, we want to help you with your decision. I'm going to finish my prayer, and we're going to ask you to come. Lord, we do ask that when the final note is played today and when we're dismissed, that we can say with impeccable integrity, I've surrendered all. And advance that in these moments now. In Jesus' name, amen.